0: They're people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have part two of my interview with Pamela Miller, founder and executive director of Alaska Community Action on Toxics, also known as ACAT. We pick up our conversation as Pam describes the work that initially brought her to the West Coast from Florida, including her work for Washington State's Department of Ecology to establish a National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Washington and Oregon. We discuss her work with Greenpeace and the environmental and health impacts of the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill, as well as the less well-remembered Nestuca spill in 1988. Pam talks about the process of starting ACAT and its early work, including researching the leakage of radioactive material from nuclear testing under Amchitka Island in the 1960s and 70s. Finally, we discuss Pam's work as co-chair of the International Pollutants Elimination Network, IPEN, to implement the POPs Treaty and enact global bans of persistent chemicals, including the pesticides lindane and endosulfan and the plastics additive UV-238. One unfortunate production note. There was a third part to our interview, but the recording appears to have been lost. As a result, this episode ends somewhat abruptly, and not necessarily at an ideal stopping place. I hope that the rest of our interview will be recovered and that there will be a part three. For now, here's part two of my interview with Pamela Miller, recorded last April. How did you get out to Washington? I don't mean what mode of transportation, but uh, what what drew you out to Washington State?
1: Well, one of the things, when I was living in the Florida Keys, the keys were changing, and and it was hard to watch. And I I guess that was another, another thing that caused me to move on a little bit, in addition to wanting to, to do more than teaching, I guess. And so I took a job as a fisheries observer with the National Marine, National Marine Fisheries Service. And that was, uh, that was a, you know, three to six month stint, where I still lived in the Keys, but I, I was a fisheries observer off the coast of Alaska, but it brought me to Seattle for the training. Oh, okay. Yeah. So
0: what does a fisheries observer do for people who, who <laughs> may not know?
1: Yeah. Well you're a a biologist on board in, in this case it was the foreign fisheries who were coming within the the continental zone of the US to to do trawling so big big factory trawlers and other smaller vessels so you you are as a fisheries observer you're a biologist on board that monitors the catch that verifies the the species and the amounts of of fish that they're they're, they're catching but then also you're on board to to monitor marine mammals in the area to witness any um unfortunate incidental catch of of marine mammals but also to do observations of marine mammals that you might see off off the ship so i spent um three to six month stints in uh on japanese fishing boats off the coast of alaska and just really fell in love with alaska and we we plied the waters off off the Aleutian Islands, and I just, it was so incredibly beautiful. And just to see the rich diversity of the marine environment and the whales and sea lions and all the all the incredible creatures of this area made me fall. It took me a little while to, to get to Alaska. After that, I went to Washington State first and moved and worked at the Washington Department of Ecology. And then I was offered a job up here because of the work to stop offshore oil and gas development in Washington state. I had worked really closely with groups, including Greenpeace, kind of secretly, because that was not something that the state really sanctioned. But um, I was offered a job up here shortly after the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in 1989. Right. So I began working for Greenpeace in Alaska then and worked for Greenpeace for about seven years as a research uh, biologist and an advocate to stop the huge um, uh, plans for oil and gas development off the coast of Alaska. Say a little bit more about the
0: Exxon Valdez. I think there might be at least some listeners who, you know, weren't really around even then. And obviously, you know, to you and me, that's a major, (laughs) I think it's a milestone. I mean, not not just for you and me. It's a, It was a major environmental catastrophe. Uh, that, yeah. So just say something about that. I think that's really interesting that you had an, you didn't have a role in the in the in the crashing of the boat, but yeah. just that you played a role in the aftermath, which was extensive and the cleanup and all that's happened. I mean, litigation. I mean, just everything that, the Exxon Valdez spill is a real historical moment. So. Say something about that, what your experience was.
1: Sure. Well, even before that, I was, in addition to my job at the Washington Department of Ecology and the Oceans and Coastal Program, I, as a volunteer, managed a small marine education facility at Nisqually Reach in southern Puget Sound, mm-hmm. near the Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge. And when I was at the Washington Department of Ecology, we had started um, a program to rescue oiled birds and, mm-hmm. and to monitor uh, bird populations along the coast. And in 1988, there was a, a major spill that most people have, have forgotten, now called the Nestucca spill, which was a, a, a spill from a, a barge that contaminated hundreds of miles of the Washington and, and British Columbia coastline. And so we established a bird rescue center there at the, at the, you know, kind of the heart of where the oil spill happened and and thousands and thousands of, of seabirds, especially were affected by that spill. Yeah. And, and when I went down to establish the, the center shortly after the, the spill happened, there was an oil industry representative there from British Petroleum. And I could hear him talking in the next room. Meanwhile, volunteers were bringing in boxes and boxes of all of these tr- uh, just you know tragically um, coated birds that were dying because they had been exposed to oil. I could hear him in the next room and he was talking to somebody and I remember so distinctly, he said, well, you've got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. And I, I was just, that just was, It. I was outraged. I mean, it was all I could do not to go in and. <laughs> Slug him. <do> violence. Yes. <laughs> yes. But just the callousness, the, the extreme callousness in, in, in th- the wake of this travesty, tragic travesty, and the death and dying of all, all of all of these, not only seabirds, but many marine mammals were affected. So mm-hmm. that happened, and that was pre-Exxon Valdez oil spill. And, and at that time, then I was still working at the Nisqually Reach Nature Center when the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. And I was so concerned because the birds at this was March, you know, and all of the birds that were coming into my estuary at Nisqually Reach, I felt so protective. I felt like a mother. Uh, and and they were headed to Alaska, you know. They oh, were right. So I, I just wanted to contain them and hold them there so that they wouldn't be affected by what had just happened in Prince William Sound. right. And so it was shortly then after that, that uh, I was offered and accepted the job with Greenpeace after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And, and one of the things that I realized was not only was there terrible ecological damage to Prince William Sound and beyond, um, Kodiak Island and and all of the areas, Cachemac Bay, um, Gulf of Alaska. The communities there were devastated, tribal communities that are reliant on traditional foods uh, were so deeply affected. And something that a lot of people ignored or just didn't realize what was that the, the thousands of workers who came in to Prince William Sound were were affected by not only the oil itself being being, you know, in it from head to toe, day in and day out, right. long hours every day, and exposed to the the fumes and, and the hazardous chemicals associated the dispersants that were used on the oil. So one of the things this was after I left Greenpeace, uh, when I when I uh, had established Alaska Community Action on Toxics, we did a worker health investigation involving interns from the Yale School of Public Health and uh, a, another marine ecologist, uh, Dr. Ricky Ott, marine toxicologist, who worked with us to document the, the long-term health effects on the workers. And we found that it was the workers who used the dispersants that had the most serious health pro- long-term health problems. Oh, wow you know, diseases and deaths just as a result of the oil exposure, but the dispersants only you know enhanced and worsened, exacerbated the problems of of exposure. And Exxon tried to claim that it was it was just what they would what they would call the the Valdez crud. They claimed that these things were just infectious diseases that people were getting because they were working closely together and spreading infectious diseases that were causing respiratory and other, other symptoms. But in fact, a lot of it was because they were exposed to benzene. They were exposed to all the toxic fumes that and, and through their skin and into their lungs um, right. because of, of their work. And then the dispersants, again, just made the problem even worse. So that continues to be a problem, and we saw it with the BP spill. And so we helped make some connections there with our findings and in, in the Gulf,
0: the yes. BP spill in the Gulf during the yes. Obama administration.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And there was a lot of use of dispersant there, too, the core exit.
1: Yes. And we actually have a lawsuit also uh, against EPA to get them to regulate properly um, dispersants under the Clean Water Act because they've neglected their responsibility to do that because you know millions of gallons of this stuff are used on oil spills. They were used on Exxon Valdez oil spill and then on the BP spill in the Gulf, even at greater levels. And they exacerbate the toxicity of oil. Yes, they make it go away from the surface, but but they create such ecological harm in the water column and in you know throughout the ecosystem and also on communities and workers.
0: Right. It's the oil spill version of chemical recycling. advanced <laughs> yeah. recycling. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> uh huh. Was it was it Core Exit, the the dispersant they were using in the Valdez also in, yeah. in Prince William Sound? It was. Really? I didn't Yeah, I, I think I I don't know if I ever knew that. That's really interesting. So it's been the same thing they've been using for decades.
1: Yeah. And it's 2-butoxyethanol which is just highly toxic and causes a range of health symptoms from respiratory to cancer. Right.
0: Were were most of the cleanup workers or rescue workers were they Alaskan?
1: A lot of them were. A lot of them were fishermen who used their boats to to go out and try to to help contain the oil and to rescue animals that were affected by the oil. But there were many hundreds of workers also that came in from outside right. to work as temporary workers on the spill, and so that made it harder to to, to track the long term consequences of of their exposures.
0: Right. Okay. So,
1: so you, you
0: joined Greenpeace. What year is that?
1: 19, well, it was 1989, but it was after the Exxon Valdez oil spill that I moved here. Yeah, And we organized a tour of the Rainbow Warrior in Alaska that uh, went through Prince William Sound and, and, and other parts down the Gulf of Alaska coast to really, document the effects of the Exxon Valdez oil spill in and beyond Prince William Sound, but also to talk about, talk with communities and to organize to stop further offshore oil and gas development. So that was, yeah, from 1989. And then I left Greenpeace in 1997 to found Alaska Community Action on Toxics. And part of my, Part of the reason was that with Greenpeace, we had started a, an environmental justice and toxics project to work with communities affected by whether it was military, oil and gas development or mining, um, and then Greenpeace kind of retracted from, from that program. And so I felt that we had begun to make commitments to communities around Alaska and did not want to give up on on those commitments and and concerns i felt like it would be a betrayal of of connections and relationships that that we had already formed so i started alaska community action on toxics and one of the projects that carried over was an investigation of the formal uh, the former nuclear test site at amchitka and Greenpeace was founded by a group of activists from British Columbia that sailed in this rickety old fishing boat, the Phyllis Cormack, out into the Gulf of Alaska toward Amchitka with the idea of stopping what was to become the world's largest underground nuclear test site, Kanakin, um, that happened in 1971. So they, although they failed to stop Kanakin, they I think ignited a movement against nuclear testing that became effective toward getting a test ban treaty. And when I when I worked for Greenpeace, I had done some research about Amchitka and I was really concerned that this test, which was the world's largest underground nuclear test in history um, and conducted a, a mile, it was an explosion detonated a mile below the island surface in the Aleutian Islands, which is one of the most seismically active places in, you know, in the world, uh, fraught with cracks and fissures. So I, I began to do some research about this. And we, uh, w- when I still worked for Greenpeace, we took an expedition of scientists out there to measure and to understand if, if radiation had, had been released to the surface. And in fact, we documented, americium-241 and plutonium in samples downstream from the nuclear test site, there were three out there on this very small island, really, that had been detonated the long shot test, the in 1965, the Milro test in 1968, and then canakin the largest one in 1971. And we released a report called Nuclear Flashback, which got national attention. And then um, I also felt that I really wanted to do more work on this and go back and do further investigation. And so Green Greenpeace at that time was not really interested in doing that, even though that was really their legacy and their history. So feeling somewhat frustrated with that um, was another reason why I founded Alaska Community Action on Toxics. And we did a second uh, follow up to that nuclear flashback 2, which investigated more of the worker health exposures because there were hundreds of workers out there, of course, exposed to dangerous levels of radiation. And I began to work with widows of uh, of those workers and doing Freedom of Information Act requests and working with Dr. Rosalie Bertel, who was really at the time, she's no longer with us, but really one of the top scientists in understanding the effects of radiation exposure. And through that, we were able to get medical monitoring and compensation for the Amchitka workers.
0: Wow. That's a, that's a major accomplishment to get, to get that. That's it's not easy to do to get
1: yeah and there was a lot of opposition from the department of energy at the time and that yeah. was under clinton administration although mm-hmm. under the clinton administration documents that had been classified were released not all not all of them are even released to this day there's still a a group of of papers that we know about, um, called the Kanakin papers that have never been, um, declassified. Wow.
0: That's interesting because it's what national security.
1: That's what they claim there.
0: I mean, is that what they're claiming? Yeah. Yes. And uh, do you, are there researchers who sort of try and keep trying to get them or renew their efforts every few years or how did do, how does that,
1: no one except us. <laughs>
0: just you all? Oh, okay. You, you occasionally try, huh? Well, it might be good to try again. Who knows? I
1: think so. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, there, there's just quite a story there that even most Alaskans are not aware of. And the, Kanakin, the proposed Kanakin test at the time really caused a, a worldwide protest uh, in Japan, all really many parts of the world, um, activists were opposing the nuclear test at at, at Amchitka, the Kanakan test. It went to the Supreme Court, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court did not stop the test, so it went forward in December of nineteen seventy one. But there was a worldwide protest in it, and it did, I think have a lot to do with the movement toward uh, the test ban treaty. Right. Did you, was,
0: was that on your radar in 1971? Were you aware of it or you, you've learned about that later? That's not something you've.
1: Yeah, no, I was, I I hadn't even heard of it. I, you know, was freshman in high school at that time. Yeah. (laughs) uh, So no, I, I was not aware of it, but I was surprised as we did this research, how little, was known even among Alaskans about the history of of that test, of the three nuclear tests at Mchitka, And the reason they were conducted there by the then uh, U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, which became the Department of Energy, was because it was thought of as a remote location. And these were tests that they wanted to conduct that were deemed too large for the Nevada test site because of of the – closeness of urban populations like las vegas so they were looking to test these larger nuclear weapons at a remote location and amchitka was the place that they selected ironically even though you know this is the place of the Aleutian, the anungan people and who had had occupied these lands and waters for for centuries and so that that was really ignored. And there was there was a large um, group of Aleut people who opposed the tests that formed um, the Alut League to try to oppose the test. And then a group of Alut women called Mothers Against Kanakin were very active in trying to stop the test. But yet it, it it did go forward. And then these two previous tests, and again, in a place of some of the greatest seismic activity in the world. And and in a place where the radiation could could not be contained in any, it, it was just the most stupid thing <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. Right. But even, you know, there was a lot of opposition even in Congress. And uh, we had a senator at that time, Senator Mike Gravel. Oh, sure. Yeah. Died recently. But yeah. he, he was very active in protesting this and even did you know, demonstrations and and uh tried to raise this through legal means in the, on the floor of congress and and joined with um representative patsy mink from hawaii at the time and th- there was a lot of interest in in stopping this test and yet it because of i think the political power of the atomic energy commission and the influence of people like edward teller um it went ahead
0: and that's the That's the, the birthplace of Greenpeace. I, I did not know that I did not know that. And I mean, Greenpeace went on to become a, you know, a worldwide, you know, impactful organization and they still, uh, obviously they still are doing a lot of work in the U S and around the, the world. They they had sort of a legendary toxics program as you alluded to for some number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you interact with folks in other parts of Greenpeace USA when you're up? I mean, you're in Alaska, so was there? Were there? And there wasn't the internet then. So was there? Uh, were there ways of? Um, how did Greenpeace work at that time? Was was everybody just sort of just doing their own thing, or did you have some? collaboration or interaction with other folks from that time?
1: Yeah, I was part of of the program on offshore oil and gas development primarily at that time, but that led into, because, because the oil and gas industry, of course, has caused a lot of pollution problems in, in and around Alaska. And in the community work that we were doing to stop offshore oil and gas Development. We uh, did quite a lot of research and work with community members in in and around the Kenai Peninsula, where the oil and gas industry had been operating for for many many years. This preceded the the development at Prudhoe Bay. Right. And community members drew our attention to the hazardous waste that the oil and gas industry had left. And we did a, an investigation of that as well and did a, a sm- small film film called Deadly Neighbor that interviewed people that were affected by the hazardous waste left by the oil and gas industry and the health problems that that caused in in these communities of, of the Kenai Peninsula. And there was a, a group at the time called Public public awareness committee for the environment or pace. And we worked with them to document and create this film called "Deadly Deadly Neighbor, that looked at the hazardous waste sites in and around the Kenai Peninsula, the illegal dumping that the oil and gas industry did in Cook Inlet, the millions of gallons of toxic waste that they dumped directly into the marine environment of Cook Inlet. And that was another thing that when i worked for greenpeace we brought a lawsuit against the three major oil companies that were operating in cook inlet at that time and with a public interest law firm here called trustees for alaska mm-hmm. we documented hundreds of thousands really of violations of the clean water act and illegal dumping of of hazardous chemicals into cook inlet and we brought lawsuit under the clean water act and we won a settlement agreement and that helped establish uh, what is now the cook and the keeper so um, the the settlement agreement resulted in i think at the time maybe one of the largest citizen suit settlements that had been done under the clean water act and we used that to to create a watchdog group specifically focused on the oil and gas industry in cook inlet called cook inlet keeper. And they continue to do great work and thrive today. Right. So
0: it had been your goal, I guess, to move to Alaska or you had it in mind that you would want to live in Alaska. So were you, were you excited about that
1: part of it? I was really excited because when I was a fisheries observer, you know, serving on these, fishing boats and seeing just the beautiful coastline and marine environment of Alaska I, I did I fell in love with it and and um I think I was just biding my time until Greenpeace offered me a position to to come to Alaska and and work on offshore oil gas and marine issues here okay so then um
0: they are ramping down their their work in that area around 19. 19- Ninety-seven or ninety-six, I guess. And what was the process by which you founded your own organization? I mean, that people do do that. I've talked to a few other people already for the podcast. Obviously, Lois did that, and uh, Mark Mitchell did that. But it just I—I I don't know that I asked either of them quite this way. But just the—you know—what does it take to say, okay, well, I'm going to create my own organization? That's a very particular thing and particularly an advocacy organization in a state where that's not going to be easy to do. It's, it's not, you know, you're, you're, you're knowingly taking on, you know, some of the biggest challenges in a, you know, a politically difficult environment. So just what was your, what, what were you thinking in 1997 when you created ACAT?
1: Well, I, you know, there's a very long, History wonderful history of the conservation movement here in Alaska that have worked very hard and diligently to protect the lands and waters of this place. and of course, tribes who have advocated for for the protection of their lands and waters. and And yet, really, there was not an organization. Focusing on environmental health and justice issues, it was more about protecting the Arctic refuge. that That was a huge focus, and still is. Sure, um, right. protecting um, the Tongass from from old growth logging, and it was about more place based type of you know traditional conservation work rather than environmental health and justice. So to me, it seemed like there was a very important place and a role for an organization that could really focus in that and, and not just strictly conservation, but to bring human health, community health, and research, community-based research into it. So it seemed at the time that there was a real need. And I did have quite a lot of help from uh, an organization called the Alaska Conservation Foundation. Mm -hmm. And, at the time, there was a woman on the board there named Celia Hunter, who is just a hero in the Alaska conservation movement. And, and she she was on the board and was a very big advocate and help, as were staff of the Alaska Conservation Foundation. So initially, Alaska Community Action on Toxics was a program of the Alaska Conservation Foundation, and they helped me make connection with, with some foundation supporters who, who then supported it. At first it was just me rattling around in there with, (laughs) with a few volunteers and, and um, eventually, you know, we were able to grow uh, um, over time and with more support from, from foundations and individuals who supported the work.
0: Yeah. So you had a vision and just started pursuing it or, you know, recognized a a, a need, a, a real need.
1: Yeah, and, and we formed an advisory board, and the advisory board, before it became a standalone organization, was comprised of, of people, um, mostly women from affected communities, and, and one of our founding board members, who's still on our board, is a Yupik woman named Pauline Kohler, and she lives outside of Dillingham in a small, outside a small village called Aliknagik that is her home her and her husband's home is located on the wood river and she drew my attention to uh, a mining retort site Uh, that region is really rich in mercury deposits so there had been a lot of mining historical mining of mercury in that area and right Upstream from our home was an old mining retort site. And and so one of our first projects as ACAT, really through the transition from Greenpeace to ACAT, was to investigate the extent of the mercury contamination there. So I trained her son and her husband to um, collect samples, sediment and water samples uh, um, in the vicinity. And we found just astronomically high levels of mercury. And that led to... Uh, a cleanup of of that old mining retort site. Hmm. When does
0: ACAT sort of move out from being a project of the Alaska Conservation, was it Alaska Conservation Network?
1: Alaska Conservation
0: Foundation. Oh, Alaska Foundation, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. wh- when does it sort of not break off in any, I mean, I don't know if it was hostile, but like, when does it sort of become freestanding, I guess.
1: Yeah. I I think it's when it it was mutual, you know, when, when we, when we uh, fly the nest, fly from the nest, I guess Uh, it, it was, it was a mutual agreement when we felt like we had a sustainable base of support for the work that we became our own independent nonprofit organization. Right. Still very small, you know, with two staff, and and then we've gradually we have nine staff now here in Anchorage, and four community health researchers on Civilcock or Saint Lawrence Island that work part time to do our community based research.
0: Right. So, how? At what? Tell me. Tell me about how you. I mean, you've ended up working on a whole. We talked about this at the beginning. Slew of problematic chemicals, classes of chemicals, persistent chemicals. But tell me about uh, lindane and endosulfan and what your, tell me that story.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we really started out to address more locally based problems, whether from military or mining or oil and gas development. And we also had a, a early on a, a, a major project to get pesticides out of the Anchorage School District, and, and it resulted in one of the first um, policies that required a least toxic approach to pest management in schools. And that came about because mothers and students came to us and said, hey, they're using this stuff, they're not notifying us, we, we think it's dangerous. And so, of course, we, we, with them, did an investigation and found they were using many uh, harmful chemicals, including chlorpyrifos in, in the schools, inside the schools at that time, and then really harmful herbicides and other pesticides on the exterior of the schools and the playgrounds. So we, we worked with the Anchorage School District and the school board with students and, and parents to, to get that policy established in, in the year 2000. And it's been quite effective now in reducing pesticide use in the schools almost 100%. Yeah. But just, you know, hearing, I think there there was a lot of realization at the time again because of these studies that had happened in Canada about the long-range transport of chemicals into the north and into the arctic and the effects that, that those chemicals might have on indigenous peoples. And we know that chemicals don't respect political boundaries or even wilderness boundaries and and it seemed that even though we, especially at that time, we were very small, that it was important because of our place in the North and the Arctic to work internationally to get bans on these chemicals because it wasn't enough to, to work on state policies, although those are important and we do, and on national policies, we do. Yeah. But these chemicals are going to continue to be produced and used in Mexico, the pesticides and, and produced in China. And, and we are a hemispheric sink for all of these chemicals. So, so it was really important for us to work internationally, even though it was, it was a real stretch. But at that time, there was this growing movement internationally that became the international POPs Elimination Network, which is now called the International Pollutants Elimination Network, or IPEN. And so we became a part of that network, which was so powerful and so inspiring to see groups from all over the world fighting for a toxic-free future. And and so we became a part of that network that then resulted in the the, um, signing of the Stockholm Convention. And then... So the subsequent subsequent work of uh ensuring the proper implementation of of the Stockholm Convention because it isn't enough to just get a treaty but to make sure that that treaty works properly and and works to to actually ban the world's most dangerous chemicals and that's the real beauty i think of of the Stockholm Convention is that not only is it global and legally binding but it is based on the precautionary principle and it has a mechanism in place for the addition of new pops so the initial agreement was for the dirty dozen uh, chemicals that were uh, initially agreed upon including some of the famous ones like d t and pcbs dioxins and furans were included in that several other pesticides and industrial chemicals but then the the treaty allows for the nomination and addition evaluation and inclusion of of new chemicals. So the the convention has now included 30 uh, chemicals and chemical classes within the provisions of the treaty for global bans, including several flame retardants and um, short-chain chlorinated paraffins, as well as the ones that you mentioned, lindane and endosulfan and lindane was included under the treaty in 2009 and that was a huge fight because at that time lindane was one of the most widely used and pe- widely used insecticides in the world and it was used not only in agriculture but also to treat head lice in children and applied directly to the heads of of little children this you know neurotoxic chemical it's just outrageous and it was sanctioned by the the US Food and Drug Administration and in wide use in Canada and and so even though the US was not and is not a party to the convention they had a huge influence in in opposing the listing of of lindane under the provisions of the treaty it was actually nominated by Mexico and um and so we worked very closely with scientists and others from the Mexican government who were very adamant about getting a global ban on on lindane and the major isomers or forms of of lindane hexachlorocyclohexane alpha and beta as well as the gamma isomer which is lindane so we worked very hard with with really key scientists and government officials in in Mexico to put together a strong nomination document and evaluation process that the POTS review committee went through to uh, recommend the global listing. And initially there was going to be an exemption for the listing of lindane because the US and Canada largely requested an exemption for the use of lindane as a head lice treatment. So that exemption, the, the listing went forward with that exemption, which then expired. So now Lindane is 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 banned for both agricultural and so-called pharmaceutical use. But it took a lot of work. And then following that, um, and that I think that's another strength of the treaty, is that even if a a, a nation is not a party to the convention, the listing under the Stockholm Convention influences national policy. So it was shortly after that, then, that the U.S. banned it for agricultural use, and eventually the FDA banned it for the use for treatment of head lice. And
0: there's been an explosion of head lice ever since, right? We couldn't actually survive without lindane all those oh my years? God.
1: We're going to have to go back and use it again, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Uh, so many of these stories of Okay. Sorry, were you saying, how many chemicals or classes of chemicals are now on the Stockholm? Was that 30 total? I believe, I believe it's 30, well, 30, yeah, 30 in total. Including the original 30 dozen.
1: Yes. And, each, and Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, it's somewhat frustrating because we know chemicals should be addressed as classes. And they are, in certain instances, instances under the Stockholm convention, like the PBDEs Mm -hmm. as well as short chained and medium chain chlorinated paraffins and others, but others are single, single chemicals like endosulfan, for instance, lindane, um, the listing included all three major forms of, of, of HCH. Mm -hmm. So I think that was, that was quite significant and right now, um, the largest number of chemicals are under evaluation by the Scientific Expert Committee of the Stockholm Convention. So, and, and we're, we're, I think, transitioning now into addressing chemicals that, that are in current use in, in major, um, you know, major high volume production chemicals. So for instance, medium-chain chlorinated paraffins are under evaluation. A huge high-volume production chemical called UV-328 is under evaluation as as a persistent pollutant, and that's a significant one because UV stabilizers haven't been largely considered, I think, even in national policies on toxic chemicals, but it is a pop, And, and it's also a real precedent for the Stockholm convention, because one of the major means of transport into remote regions is within microplastics. So there's been a lot of opposition from governments like the US, who really do not like that precedent at all. And the chemical industry is very much opposed to that, because they do not want microplastics to be considered one one of the Means and mechanisms of transport and conveyance of these harmful chemicals into remote regions and also into um, fish, animal, uh, other animals, wildlife, as well as as people, and also uh, a subclass of PFAS are under evaluation, nominated by Canada, called the long chain perfluoro carboxylic acids. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So
1: the, yeah, there, there, there's some, oh, and dechlorine plus, which is another flame retardant manufactured really only in the U S and China and the U S opposed that. And, and actually got a delay in the progress toward the global listing of that chemical because they have a vested interest in it being manufactured in the U S. So one thing I can't remember if we said out loud or not. POPs
0: stands for persistent organic pollutants. So these are long last, I mean, persistent, I think is the key thing that they're they're in the environment for a long time. And as we talked about earlier, a lot of them end up in the north or the south. And so Alaska is a particularly hard hit area where these persistent and bioaccumulative chemicals sink. All different kinds and classes, some of which we've been talking about flame retardants and various pesticides and and other chemicals and as you were saying so how many how many countries i don't know what's the easier number how many countries are party to the stockholm convention or how many countries besides the us are not parties
1: i believe now might be 182 or 183 countries that are party to the convention the us is not yet they wield you know, extraordinarily in, extraordinary influence over the deliberations of the Stockholm Convention, both at the meetings of the the expert committee, the Pops Review Committee, and at the conference of the parties themselves. And they have opposed the listing of several chemicals that have global consequences, but yet they've largely been overrided, I think, because the nations of the world agree, and I think I think the non governmental organizations of of IPEN have had a big influence in being the conscience of the convention, and bringing not only scientific evidence, but we have organized a, a global indigenous caucus of Arctic indigenous peoples to make sure that the delegates to the convention realized that these are not abstract issues. These are issues that affect the health and the ability of these peoples and cultures to survive and the intergenerational uh, effects of these persistent organic pollutants. So um, it's it's really been an extraordinary effort of, of, of the now more than 600 groups of the International Pollutants Elimination Network that have been involved in the, not only the negotiation, but the implementation of the treaty. And again, to make sure that the governments really do the right thing to, and, and that we provide the evidence, the science, the voices that, that lead to the right decisions.
0: We're probably better off that the US isn't a party, right? Because then they would have more influence. Is that is that an act is that a fair or true statement, or what do you think?
1: I, I think it is. They uh even through several administrations.
0: I was just gonna say it's not partisan. I I know this is true, wow. that whoever's in the White House doesn't make a difference in this way. They're yeah. all there are pretty much always uh, opposing or trying to slow or prevent whatever is being considered is that right
1: yes and and we saw this as recently as January at the meeting of the expert committee, the pops review committee, when the u s was actively trying to oppose the advancement of chemicals including chlorine plus the flame retardant that's a replacement for deca b d a Uh, It's a chemical that is very similar in structure to the banned chemical known as MIREX, and it's manufactured on the Great Lakes near Niagara Falls and and in China. And the U.S. really actively opposed it and claimed that there there was not enough evidence about the health effects of this chemical so that it shouldn't move forward. So it, it was, in fact, delayed. And then they actively opposed the advancement toward global elimination of the UV stabilizer called UV-328 right. because they're very concerned about the precedent of the Stockholm Convention considering mm-hmm. chemicals being transported in microplastics into re- remote regions. Right, And so they, they tried to cast denial of the science on um the, the listing for UV-328. UV and this has been a pattern. They did the same thing for endosulfan. They have done it for chemicals that they have a, another vested interest in, like pentachlorophenol, the pesticide that was listed in 2017 under the Stockholm Convention. And we, we really had to fight both the US and Canada on this one because they were the world's largest users of pentachlorophenol to treat utility poles. And they they really wanted to maintain that use, but they were overrided and pentachlorophenol was listed.
0: When, when that's happening um, in Geneva, is it, is that, is that the state department who's doing that or the commerce department? Is it EPA or, or who's, what's the U.S. presence there? Who's, who's providing the, you know, the arguments, the, the, you know, who, who's, Who's there from the U.S. saying the science isn't good enough to ban whatever endosulfan or or um, MIREX or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's at it, at the expert committee meetings of the POPS review committee. It's usually just the EPA. Sometimes the State Department comes to those meetings, but at the Conference of the Parties, both the EPA and department of state have have a presence at those meetings
0: even though they're not a party the us is not a party they they still have a role to play
1: yeah they're considered observers and mm-hmm. and yet they they really try to throw their weight around and try to you know maintain a claim that the us is really at the forefront of chemical regulation which we know is ridiculous And, and they, they wield their influence in the hallways and Mm -hmm. through interventions and they are observers, but, um, I, I do think that they, they maintain influence that is really beyond the scope of, of their position as observers.
0: The Toxic Avengers Podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Toxic Avengers Podcast.